It is uh, good to see you this morning. I, uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here at New Community. For those of you that do, you realize that uh, I'm doing the handheld mic this morning and not the Brittany mic, which um, two reasons why. Reason number one, because you can tell um, a cold has settled into my throat. Either that or I've smoked a lot this week, one of the two. Um, and the second reason is because Joseph uh, on staff thinks I'm pretentious and always want to use the Britney mic. And so this is also proof that I can do this as well. So those are uh, my reasons for this morning. Uh, so glad that you're with us. We are in a series uh, called Paradox, and we are looking this morning at another paradox that we find in the scriptures. This morning we're looking at not hope and grief, but rather feasting and fasting. That'll be the focus of this morning, feasting and fasting. And it feels appropriate, at least from my perspective, for us to speak on these two ideas and the ways they kind of balance and dance together uh, because we're coming off of the Lenten season. And the Lenten season, as we know, is this beautiful season of preparation in anticipation of the resurrection. And so for Lent, oftentimes we fast or set aside time, uh, set aside certain activities in preparation, but we're also called into a season of feasting, and that is feasting and celebrating the beauty and the power of the resurrection. And so the season that we have just experienced and embodied is both a season of fasting and of feasting, and so it's pretty appropriate for us, um, since we've been called to do both in our life, uh, to take a little few moments to look at this calling. My hope this morning is to try to balance these two ideas and give us a picture of what it looks like to live into both callings, because they're both things that we have been uh, called into. So I'll start with just reminding us of that, and then hopefully giving us a picture of how we might balance those two with each other. So first, we'll look at fasting. Fasting is something that as all Christians, we, I don't want to use the word, are required to do, but I would say it's assumed that we will do. In fact, Jesus, when speaking of fasting, makes this statement. The text reads in Mark 2, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, being Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The implied answer would be no. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So this is not a, like, if you will fast, but more of an implied, assumed, you will fast kind of statement, right? That we live currently in that day, the time between when Jesus walked among men and lived and the bridegroom was with them, so they chose not to fast, to now where the bridegroom is no longer with us and we await the bridegroom's arrival and it's in this season, the one on which we exist, that 
we are called to fast. So we are in the era of fasting. And for fasting, fasting is something I think that we do uh, accidentally. It's something we do unintentionally, and it's also something we do with intention. I'll give you an example of each. So accidentally, there are many times I think we accidentally fast. So for example, when we skip breakfast, and then we call it intermittent fasting, that's a way that we accidentally fast, right? Uh, another way that we sometimes will accidentally fast is when we forget to charge our phone and then it goes dead and then we're like, well, I was on a media fast, right? Like we find, we find ways to take credit for fasting things that maybe we accidentally stumbled upon, right? Uh, we also do it unintentionally. So many of us experience um, times where we're fasting, but we're either not aware that we're actually forsaking something, or we call it by a different name. Uh, so sometimes, many of us in the room will take a little season to be really quiet or to have times of silence. Well, that's a way of fasting from noise and being overwhelmed with noise. Or what we'll do is we'll take a little time by ourselves, right? It uh, doesn't matter if you're introverted or extroverted or somewhere in between. We, we all probably at times need a little time by ourselves, a little solitude. That's actually a way of fasting from people or from community. And we talked recently about kind of that movement of being by self in solitude and yet the movement of being with community. Um, we also will at times, and maybe you're not like this, but I definitely will do this, if I know that a really good meal is about to happen, we're talking like Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever. I don't know if scientifically this makes sense, but I definitely save room. Like in, earlier in the day, I'm like, no, I'm not going to have a snack. No, let me skip lunch. We got the good stuff coming, right? That's like a way of fasting in preparation for something, but I usually don't think about it that way. So I would say that's like unintentionally fasting. The same thing is true if, uh, if you've ever stayed up to wait for someone to come home or to wait to pick up someone at the airport or hoping someone's arrival comes, right? We're, we're intentionally staying up, maybe foregoing sleep, the scriptures we call it watching, right, waiting, that is a form of fasting as well, right? And these are things that we unintentionally or accidentally stumble into. There's also intentional fasting, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. We're going to put it on pause, and we're going to look at feasting for a moment. Now, feasting is interesting because um, in the Old Testament, God seemed to structure much of uh, his chosen people's calendar around the idea of feasting and fasting. In fact, there are many, just as many calls to feast as there are calls to fast. We tend to not speak about it a lot within uh, current church culture, but there are sacred rhythms of feasting. If you look at the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Leviticus, there's a call to the people of Israel to have multiple feasts. You can see them there on the screen. Passover, uh, first fruits, atonement. And on top of this list, 
The Jewish people have also added holy days in which to feast, and then Hanukkah. All of that came a little bit later, right? And so all of these are examples of this idea that there is a rhythm for God's chosen people with the idea of feasting. And this idea goes back to the Old Testament, but with it, there was also one other feast that wasn't like practiced, but was anticipated. So much of Old Testament culture and language and tradition spoke to this idea that there would be a time where there would be a messianic feast. The Messiah would come. There would be this end times feast, massive banquet, huge party, the choicest of meats, the best of wines. It would be something for everyone to anticipate. And all people would be invited, regardless of nation. It was this like anticipated, excited moment where we could look forward to the feast. And Isaiah 25 even speaks to that idea. You'll notice it here. It says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So from the Old Testament on, there was this anticipated messianic feast, that there would be a time where the Messiah would come and would feast with people, okay? Now, that picture is one that obviously Jesus began to live into, right? So we get to the New Testament, and we begin to see this rhythm of feasting. I mean, if you've read any of the New Testament, you will notice that Jesus was like big into meals, like he loved meals, he loved hanging out at the banqueting table. I mean, he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, which means you had to be hanging out with other people that were also gluttons and drunkards, right? But it also means that you probably were at the parties. You were enjoying the feast, that you were around the celebration. And uh, so much so, we noticed this, that Jesus' first miracle happened where? A wedding feast, right? This massive party was his first uh, demonstration of him being the Messiah or one with these gifts. Then we get to the Gospel of Luke. If you look at Luke, it is arranged around eight different feasts. So you have the first banquet where Jesus is with uh, Levi at his house, a second dinner at Simon's house where a woman comes in, interrupts, and washes his feet. We see in Luke a third meal in the wilderness with 5,000 people. We see a fourth meal with Jesus with the Pharisees washing, um, but he, he doesn't wash his hands before he eats the meal, and there's like this big controversy going on. We see another meal or another feast where he heals a man with dropsy. Then the sixth one is when he invites um, Zacchaeus to come and, and have tea or to hang out or to have a 
a dinner with him. Um, and then the seventh and most like climatic one is the what we would call the Lord's Supper, right? So there's these feasts that happen, these dinners, these celebrations that happen in the life of Jesus again and again and again. Then you notice that he, what we've just celebrated, right? He uh, gives his life on Good Friday, is resurrected on Easter Sunday. Have you noticed post-resurrection, the only time Jesus shows up is for meals? The only time. The dude loves the food, right? I mean, that's the only time he's showing up. So we see him uh, walking with the men on a road to Emmaus, and then they go to have dinner together, and that's when they realize, like, oh, this is Jesus. He was with us again, right? Or you notice that he has dinner with his disciples on the beach, and he's cooking food, and he's, he's waiting for them to come back in from being on the water. And then meals where he shows up unannounced, and then reveals his hands and his side, and has dinner, and they share the Last Supper again, but in a new way, right? So you see this throughout his life and his ministry. You even realize that like almost a majority of the stories he teaches are about feasts. He tells the story of a prodigal son and an older brother and the feast that was awaiting them. He tells the story of a rich man who invites all of his friends to a banquet and then none of them show up. And so the man goes out and he just starts inviting anyone off the streets to communicate that the grace of God, that the invitation to the banqueting table is for everyone. And so there is this very clear picture that feasting and celebration is not only a part of Jesus' life, but is part of a calling for us as followers of Jesus. But what I have noticed in our culture as we talk about fasting and feasting is uh, we are a culture that loves to swing pendulums and we swing them from one side, and we don't really kind of find center because we just have to like swing it so hard that we're going to the other side. And then we course correct, and it goes back, and we find ourselves kind of ping-ponging back and forth between things. And I feel like when we do, we, in many ways, when we think of feasting and fasting, we're toggling, but we're toggling from kind of deprivation on one side to fasting into feasting and then overindulgence or full, like full-on consumption of any and everything on the other side. And we don't really find a healthy balance where there's this rhythm between being people of fasting and being people of feasting, a thing that we're both called to. We're certainly not called to deprivation. We're certainly not called to overindulgence. We're called to this rhythm, this balance of both fasting and feasting. So what I want to do is just suggest a, a couple ways that we can lean into uh, what it might look like to settle on a healthy rhythm. So I want to suggest both intentional fasting and intentional feasting as a way to find ourselves kind of at balance. So intentional fasting is to purposely set aside something. We I think all know this idea of what fasting is. But I think the missing component of much of fasting is the why. So I will, on regular occasions, talk to people who are trying to either experiment with fasting or they're saying, yeah, I'm in a season of fasting or it's Lent and I'm fasting. 
And the number one question I try to ask them is simply, why? What's the purpose? What's the goal? What are you seeking? And usually it's a very like pregnant pause like this. I didn't really think about that part. I thought about how I was going to do the fast or what it is I was going to fast. Like I'm going to fast meat or I'm going to fast food or I'm going to fast whatever. But the question becomes, why are we fasting? What is its purpose? What is the goal? And what are we forsaking something for? Because to forsake something can be very good, but not necessarily if it isn't tethered to something that we're forsaking it for. And so I want to encourage us to consider fasting, but fasting with the goal or the intention of awakening something. So fasting to awaken would be my suggestion. And here's what I mean by that. I don't know if you've ever fasted from food for um, any length of time, really, because you could probably fast for less than 24 hours, and this be true, or you could fast up to three days a week, however long, and this will also be true. And that is this, that when I fast from food, and this is an experience that's not just mine, but others experience the same thing, there is something that happens to me personally where I can be walking down the street and all of a sudden I'm like, who is cooking in their backyard right now? Because someone is. And it smells like chicken on the barbecue. And other people are like, what are you talking about? Like, like you don't smell that? Or you'd be going down just like the street. You've gone down a hundred times and you've never noticed a restaurant there. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh somebody's cooking something around here, right? Because your senses are heightened. They're awakened. And what's fascinating is when you take that first bite after fasting for a bit, it is like something is exploding in your mouth. And it's so flavorful, and it's so enjoyable, and you're like, man, I didn't realize how much I enjoyed this, right? Because we just get used to doing something over and over and over again. Fasting awakens something in us. It awakens our taste buds. It awakens our senses. It becomes really obvious that this is something we're looking forward to. The other thing I think it awakens is a deeper awareness of our appetites. Okay? It awakens a deeper realization or an awareness of our appetites, the things for what we crave. And I'm not just talking about food. When you fast, something happens where you begin to realize like, and maybe it's because of the space that's come into your life, maybe it's because you have additional time within the day that you're not preparing or eating or cleaning up for the food. But something happens within us that kind of awakens this understanding that there are other things I'm craving. I might be craving people's attention. I might be craving the immediacy of something. Like one of the things that uh, my wife will notice is I become more impatient when I'm fasting. Okay, it doesn't matter how long the fast is, there's just something where I must like efficiency, I must like getting things done, I must like 
And so when I'm fasting, that is heightened in a way that makes me aware of it. And it makes me realize how I'm interacting with other people. And I say these things all for the purpose of, all of that is good. Awakening our taste buds and our senses is good. Awakening our understanding of other appetites is good. But all of that really is with the intention of awakening us to a greater awareness and dependence on God. Awakening within us this understanding of are we actually craving God in the same way we're craving these other things that our appetites have grown accustomed to. And so as you think about intentional fasting, think about it through the lens of awakening something and having that awaken us to this awareness of God so that in our fasting, we then desire feasting, right? So our fasting with this purpose of awakening draws us toward, on that pendulum, towards feasting. So let's talk about feasting for a moment. If you have your Bible, if you could turn to 1 Timothy 6, it will also be on the screen. But 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, this is what's stated there. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, I know some of you are reading that and thinking to yourself, what, if anything, does this have to do with feasting? This does not seem like the kind of passage to draw that idea from. You're right. So, I do think it has something very clear that it can teach us about this idea of feasting. So, let's explore it for a moment. We're just going to walk right through the text. So, it starts with this. As for the rich in this present age, right? This is a call to us. Okay, it's written to certain believers at that time, but it is absolutely a call to us. We don't have to debate it. Uh, we are the rich, right? We're the rich in this present age. And he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them. Okay, it's a command. It's a teaching. It's not like a suggestion. It's not like, a, eh, if you want to get around to it. It's a, this is a command. Charge them. Okay, this is what we're being communicated to Timothy. And he says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Bonhoeffer, kind of echoing that same idea, makes this statement. Our hearts have room for only one all-embracing devotion. Jesus says it a different way. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay? And by money, replace money with the idea of you cannot serve both God and the things that we often want or desire money for. So I'll give you that. You cannot replace God with security. This desire to be secure. Okay? Nor freedom. Some of us desire money for the freedom that it gives. Don't set your, un, it, your hopes on the uncertainty of freedom, but on God. Or power, but God. Or identity, status, 
influence but God, right? What he's simply reminding us of is the source of everything is God. He follows it up by making this statement, who richly provides us with everything. So set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything. This is simply a reminder that all we have is a gift, everything. The breath you just took is a gift. The heartbeat you just had is a gift. The clothes that you wear, gift. The way you got here, a gift. The weather outside, a gift. The job you have, a gift. The roof over your head, a gift. All that we have is a gift. James says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. Everything that we have is a gift. And when we begin to think of feasting as a gift, it should remind us of the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper. Jesus is said to have taken the bread, broke it, and gave thanks. That's why it's Eucharist, Thanksgiving. It is this idea that every meal is a Eucharistic moment. Every meal is one for which we can be thankful. Every meal, every time we eat together is an opportunity for relationship. Relationship with farmers, relationship with cooks, relationship with people, relationship with God. All of it, all at the same time. Because it is a Eucharistic moment, it is an act of grace for which we are thankful. All of life is a gift. Henry Nouwen, as many of you know, one of my favorite authors, makes this statement. He was reflecting on a time living among the poor in South America, and he says this, What I claim as a right, my friends received as a gift. What is obvious to me was a joyful surprise to them. What I take for granted, they celebrate in thanksgiving. What for me goes by unnoticed became for them a new occasion to say thanks. And I slowly learned, I learned that everything that is is freely given by the God of love. All is grace. Light and water, shelter and food, work and free time, children, parents, and grandparents, birth and death. It is all given to us. Why? So that we can say thanks. Thanks to God, thanks to each other, Thanks to all and everyone. All of life is a gift. The text says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. To enjoy. So he provides all things richly and for our enjoyment. This is part of the feasting, right? To actually enjoy it. I think sometimes within Christian circles... Um, we're not told to embrace the gift. Now, we don't want to separate the gift from the giver, 
right? We just said that all of life is a gift. But we're also feasting is an opportunity for us to experience and participate in God's divine joy. God is the one who declared everything good. God is the one that sat back in creation, <clears throat> looked at everything and said, oh my goodness, this is good. It is for our good. It's for our enjoyment. It's for our pleasure. And God richly gives for our enjoyment. So whether it's Thanksgiving or Easter or a celebration or birthday or anniversary or you name it, when we feast as Christians, we get a chance to celebrate in the grace and the kindness and the goodness of a giving and bountiful God. The text goes on to say that they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. I think the reason that this is communicated is because feasting always, always involves others. Always. Feasting is an act of sharing bread, a meal together. If we reflect again on the Last Supper, Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and then what? It says, and he gave it to them. He shared it. To share bread at Christ's table is an opportunity to say that everyone has a place at the table. To share bread at the table calls us to see that the person that is next to us is also, and maybe even more so, wanted by God, loved by God, accepted by God. Something divine, and we all know this to be true, happens when we break bread together, when we feast with one another, when we share a meal. Something sacred happens. And this feasting requires, as this text is communicating, a generosity, an invitation to share, an invitation to give to another. And that's part of what will keep the pendulum in balance. If the pendulum swings to overindulgence and consumption, it becomes about me rather than feasting with others. Right? I cannot create space to feast if I'm focused on acquiring. I can't create space to feast if I'm consumed with crippling debt. I cannot create space to feast if I'm only about myself and fail to see others. So this invitation to the gift that we're supposed to enjoy is to be shared. The final statement made in the text is this. <clears throat> Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the outcome, right? This is the byproduct of living a life of feasting and generosity is that the text says that they may take hold of the life which is truly life. Growing up, when I heard that, <clears throat> because the word future is in there, I was always told that what you basically do is you forego a life that is fully life now so that someday you can have life that is fully life later. So it's like suffer, hate it, it's going to be awful, do things you don't want to do, and then someday, maybe, hopefully, like we'll get something. And then usually I was like, well, what do you get? Like, okay, I mean, that sounds like I'm trading something. What am I getting? Like, oh, you're getting crowns, you're getting jewels, you're getting all that, like, 
okay, cool. Now what do I do with that? Like, what do I do with the crowns and the gold and the jewels? And like, do I put that on? Do I wear that? Do I like walk around heaven with a bunch of swag? Like, what is going on with what I'm delaying all of this for? And usually what I was told was, no, no, what you do is then you give it back to God as a gift. And I'm like, okay, so let me just rewind the tape. So back here, I'm going to forego everything, be miserable, hate all this stuff, so that someday I could get a bunch of stuff that'll be really cool, and then I'll give that away. They're like, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, what are we talking about? That sounds horrible. I don't know what we're signing up for, but man. But if you recognize and read what this is saying, to take hold of, right, is present tense. To take hold of the life that is truly life. I can tell you with absolute certainty that life is far better experienced when you're with others. Life is far better experienced when you have deep friendship and community it is far better experienced when you are generous. All of those things described in this text come to their fullest expression when done in community with generosity. That is the feast. And that is taking hold of the life that is truly life. And the best and greatest example of it is what we are about to partake in. Over the next few moments, the culminating feast of all feasts is this feast. The reminder that Christ broke his body for you and I and shed his blood for you and I that we might all be invited to the banqueting table. That regardless of background, history, who you are as a person, race, creed, money, orientation, none of that matters. What matters is the accepting grace and love of God through the person of Jesus to say, come feast. Come be at the table with us. Come take a hold of the life that is truly life. Let's pray. God, may we be people that celebrate a rhythm, not that pendulum swings from overindulgence to deprivation and back again, but rather that finds this healthy rhythm of forsaking for the sake of awakening a desire to more deeply feast on you and community and life that is truly life. God, in these next few moments as we worship in song, as we worship in partaking of the meal together, um, may we experience you as fully present. May we be reminded of your grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.